What the If is brought to you by listeners like you, thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. Thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If. Magical edition. Magic. Magic. Actually, we'll we'll check in on what our if that's a, that's a that's a subtle tease for our if this week. We'll find out if I, I'm not sure if magic is the appropriate term or not. We'll learn. We'll define our terms. That's one of the fun things we do oh, on yes. the if. <laughs> Doesn't get much more fun than defining your terms. That's right. Wake up and define your terms. Well, you know, <clears throat> that's why so, no one invites physicists to parties. I mean, <laughs> Actually, that's kind of fun. Yeah, come to the party. Well, when you say party. Let's define our. What, what do you mean? Party? Right, exactly. What do you mean by party? Yeah. <laughs> um, that is uh, Professor Matthew Stanley of New York University. Uh, how are you, sir? How are things? Uh, it's Friday, so that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah. Good news for everyone. By the way, on our uh, as we're recording this, we 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 only record the audio, but we can see each other using a, using an app. And uh, you have Matt. <laughs> there's a little exclamation mark with in a triangle mm-hmm. in your image. I don't know what that means. Uh, oh, it means you're the only stor- that. storage full. Uh oh, uh, which is probably well. I don't know. Could either be referring to my hard drive or my office. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Because you see what my office is like. Yeah. We see the there's a fair it, bit of stuff in here. So is it recording? It is recording. Yep. Okay. Good. But storage is full. Just so you know. Gabby, mm-hmm. how's your storage doing? Uh, you know, not enough boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, here's what's funny is in, in your window now, Gabby, suddenly there's all these messages. In your window, Gabby, it says actual recording is higher quality. So, yeah, yeah, I see that if you mouse over it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It feels yeah. kind of passive aggressive, you know. Actual recording, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is closer than what is that that little message that appears in the uh, side mirrors on cars? Objects in mirror uh, are closer, closer than they, yeah, closer than they appear. So sorry, Gabby, you were saying you ha- you have boxes. You're surrounded by boxes. Not enough boxes. Yeah, oh. I'm currently in the the process of moving, um, but also just packing while I'm stuck at home under COVID quarantine. Um, mm. Asymptomatic, which is great, uh, but there is a certain sense of betrayal of being a SARS-2 researcher and getting COVID. Uh, <laughs> you just also, out you, there in the nature, too. You were one of the testers. I don't know what they call it. I call it beta tester for the vaccine. Yeah, I was, and this is actually the first time I've ever gotten sick. Um, so I was part of Pfizer's initial uh, phase two, three trial study group. Yeah. And unfortunately, I finally taken the L of, of catching COVID. At this point, it was sort of like a point of pride. Like, ha, I wasn't one of the people who's gotten it at any point in time. And now it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, dang it. Yeah. Ah. I, I felt that way too. I outran it until about two months ago and then I got it. And then I was like, for six weeks, I was, I had incredible, I had flu-like symptoms, pretty intense, but you know, more more like, really, really bad cold um, for about a week. And then that lifted and I thought, oh, great, it's over. But then, no, I had this lingering, incredible fatigue. I, I, I couldn't go 
after three hours, I had to lay down. Like it wasn't even like a, even sitting up was too exhausting. It was crazy. Dang. But then, and then I, I also thought some. I don't know, if, Matt, if this happens to you. People of our of of an of a certain age. Um, I was kind of like, maybe this is how it is now. This That's is right. Just, this is just <laughs> my new normal. Yeah, it's my new normal. Mm-hmm. I'm old, but uh, woo, it lifted, and suddenly I feel fifteen years younger. Um, well, I'm sorry to hear that you're uh, you're under the weather, but glad that the weather is not so bad. Um, so the vaccine is doing its work in a way we would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, I feel fine. Um, yeah. And if this was OG COVID and, you know, if I was unvaccinated, it'd probably be, you know, a lot suckier. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are getting it twice. That's the crazy. I, I, yeah. I know a number of people now who have gotten it twice. That's just. Uh, that's I know people who've gotten Omicron, well, Omicron like subvariants and stuff like that, like almost back to back. Um, wow. It's very good at its job. I mean, viruses wow. are really, really genetically <laughs> flexible little dudes. Uh, wow. But it's been funny. At, it's been funny at the lab because we've been there's only there was only like a few of us who had never gotten it, and we were all like feeling the like walls closing in as like one by one <laughs> we were going down. And so I'm the latest one this week to fall victim to. Oh well, I finally got it. But it's almost like getting hit with a paintball. Like it, there's all this like sort of mm-hmm. dramatic lead up to it. It's there's this like slow mo diving in front of the bullet, and then you've just <laughs> taken a paintball. Like I'm stuck inside and I'm fine. Maybe I sneezed a couple of times, but I mean, yeah. at least for me, it's been all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of uh, something that feels like it's everywhere, um, that <laughs> that kind of brings us to our exciting if this week. I am I'm very excited about this topic because I. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, I, I know somewhat in, about it in one form, but not in the other. And um, so, um, uh, Matt, this was something that uh, comes out of your body of knowledge, your ex- very extensive body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why don't you give us a little context, and then we will raise the trumpets and the flags right. and announce if of the week all right so what what we've got here is we're going to be talking about what in some sense is one of the greatest failures in the history of science or one of the greatest victories depending on your point of view um so the the thing we're talking about is uh the ether right um and this sometimes you'll see it spelled e-t-h-e-r sometimes a-e-t-h-e-r and that's because it's transliterated from the greek so but it's pronounced ether Either way, um, and the AE would that would be if we saw it in print. Is that one of those that letter where the AE? Yeah, it's are one of those smished, little um, smushed together. Yeah, one of those conjoined things. It's cool. Um, so the the word goes back to to Aristotle. Um, you know, Aristotle had uh, the the cosmos full of um, uh, crystal, perfectly transparent crystal, um, and he oh. called that the the ether. Um, and it's only vaguely related to ether we're going to be talking about, which really dates back to, oh, Newton or so. Um, and one of the, um, sorry, just on that crystal yeah. idea, do you mean that he, like a solid yeah. crystal? Yeah. Solid crystal. So at what point would you hit the, the, how high would you go before you hit the surface of the crystal? Um, mountain height, mountaintop height. Okay. Um, so not that far. Right. Um, you couldn't quite hit it with a softball. Um, <laughs> and he tried. Right, he tried. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so let's see here, around, oh, 17th, 18th century or so, it becomes clear that um, light is a wave, all right? Um, and so when you think about waves, um, you know, you're, you're on the lake and you drop a rock into the lake and then the waves um, ripple out from that. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and those uh, waves have certain properties that you can see. Um, uh, and it takes a little bit of work to, to see them, but they're there. So, for instance, things like waves travel. Right? So the ripples never stay put um, mm -hmm. on the lake, but they move uh, at a particular speed. Right. Um, they also um, interfere with each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the waves can also interfere with each other in the right. sense that if two waves move past the same spot, uh, they kind of add to each other or subtract from each other, depending on, on how they interact. Uh -huh, yeah. So there's a number of um, strange phenomena that are distinct to waves. And uh, when we interact with those strange phenomena like diffraction and interference, it's usually in the context of sound waves because we generate a lot of sound. Um, so uh, you'll get these these weird rippling effects from certain kinds of, of waves. Um, right. All that to say, um, people realize that light must be a wave because light displays some of these weird effects. Um, uh -huh. So like the... Uh, the rainbow you see if you're looking at um, uh, a CD edge on. I don't know if I just made myself feel really old <laughs> by referencing the existence of CDs. Um, CD, that, also a crystal. Uh, maybe Aristotle was thinking that we lived inside a CD. A giant CD, that would be an yeah. extraordinary yeah. discovery. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, right, so a CD. Uh, so, so, a CD right. so the rainbow you see when you come off of a, when light bounces off of a, a CD, that's called diffraction, a diffraction pattern. Um, uh -huh. And by the, uh, and that's because light is a wave and right. it's bouncing off of and kind of disturbed by the um, tiny little grooves on the, the CD. So by looking at that yeah. pattern, you can infer important things about light, like what its wavelength is and how fast it goes, and, and the fact that right. it's a wave at all. I could just say the, the metaphor for waves, I imagine, did they come to it? Because with sound, you can actually, if you make um, a sound around, let's say, a loose pile of sand or perhaps water, like you can, you, if, if you vibrate a sound or, or even if you... Uh, vibrate a metal plate and you, mm -hmm. you can get a sound out of it and uh, you can see waves in the surface it's yep, making that's making right. the sound mm -hmm. so they made, um, they were making a leap from that to that's say, right well, so it's an analogy sound. right as, as you say right. you can make sound waves visible in various ways um and the the wavelength of sound and when we say sound we mean sounds that we can hear right, right. um varies um a great deal but <clears throat> but it's you know inches to feet so right. uh so if you manage to catch a sound wave in what's called a standing wave where you can see that kind of pattern um you can see it right. um the wavelength of light is on the order of nanometers so billionths of meters right very very tiny so right. even if you catch a standing wave it's harder to see um so all that to say you need to take special efforts to figure out that light is a wave it's not an obvious thing right. um and that's and there's all sorts of really important um, results that come from realizing that light is a wave. Um, the problem is that there's a um, let's see here a metaphysical burden that comes along with this too. 
which is that waves travel in media. So sound waves travel in air, but they can also travel in water, right? So that's how sonar works. Um, sound waves can travel through you. That's how ultrasound works. Um, oh. If you put your you know, ear to the ground, classic Lone Ranger style, that's sound yeah. waves traveling through the ground. Um, but without um, a media in which the wave can travel, you don't get sound waves. So this is why um, in space, no one can hear you scream because there's no there's no substance there to carry the stuff. That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, so then the the question becomes: If light is a wave, what is the medium that's carrying that light wave? Mm. Right? So you mm -hmm. can't have mm -hmm. a wave that isn't. What is it that's doing the waving? Right. We know um, light glows through space. So we see stars. That's right. So this. So there's some weird things here. So we know that space is empty in the conventional sense. It's a vacuum. Right. But light can travel through it. So that must mean right. whatever it is that is carrying the light wave is in space, but doesn't, for instance, slow down the planets as it moves through that. Right. So the hand wavy answer that's given to this by folks like Newton is to say, well, there's an ether. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a circular definition. So we say, well, what do we mean by ether? Well, we mean that's the stuff that light travels in. And like, well, how do you know that light travels in something? Well, because that's the ether. Right. Um, so the ether has to have all sorts of strange properties, right? So um, it has so to... Did, did, so Newton is grabbing that word from Aristotle. That's right. I guess, mm -hmm. right? But, but is... But is is he imagining a solid? He is well. Thing. This is the, so. This is where the ether gets weird. Right. right. Um, uh, as I mentioned, when, when you look at how a, a wave behaves, um, that's usually related to the properties of the stuff that the wave is traveling through. So, for instance, the speed of sound is higher in um, water than it is in air, and that's because the speed of pressure waves, which sound is, is related to the density. Um, of the material it's traveling through. So the denser it is, the faster the wave travels. Uh, so if you follow that kind of logic, then you should be able to derive the density of the ether because we know how fast light travels. Did that make sense? Yeah. Gabby, are you yeah. tracking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, basically, so if you could somehow compress the ether, you'd get light moving faster through it, right? Well, that's right. So that would be one possibility too. Um, but you can, in the same way that if I, if I know how sound waves propagate, um, and I measure the speed of um, sound through some unknown medium, I can derive how dense that medium is. Right. And, and I should say that's how oh. we do things like determine um, that the Earth has an iron core, right? No one's ever been down there, but right. by looking at how, the waves, how, how earthquake waves essentially move through the Earth's core, we can learn things about what's inside there. So, so then fact, by knowing remember, the speed of... Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Gabby. I was just... By knowing the speed of light, then you should know the density of exactly ether. whatever this ether is. Okay, um, it's a fairly straightforward calculation. Um, First-year physics student should be able to do it. Um, and unfortunately, the answer you get uh, is gigantic. Like it is the because light <laughs> goes really, really fast. You know, one hundred eighty-six thousand two hundred ninety-two miles per second. That's really fast. Per so, second. so yeah. the ether would have to be the densest substance ever conceived of oh. by humanity. <laughs> So, but, so, so far, Aristotle, Aristotle is, is winning. <laughs> He's good to go, right? But He's it winning. also can't be that, right? Because um, the, it, whatever the ether is doesn't um, slow down the planets as they go around the sun. So it can't be dense in the conventional sense. Uh, 
There's also weirdness because light not only travels through vacuum perfectly well, but it also goes through transparent stuff like glass. So whatever the ether is, it has to be able to go through glass, uh, through otherwise solid objects, um, which is also unsettling. Right? Oh, it couldn't be that the light simply transfers from the ether into the glass. You could, you can make a, a version of the the theory that that does right. that too. But also, um, we would have to be living inside this ether. As yep, well. that's right. Um, yeah, so the ether presumably would not be able to penetrate you because light doesn't travel through you. Um, uh-huh. And that's right. So, so we can, we can infer certain properties of the ether just from the way light behaves. Um, but those properties are really strange. Yeah. But you know, the universe is a strange place. So that's, that's cool. So we, we have this. Is that what, did Newton, did Newton say that? He's like, you know, the universe is a strange place. Uh, actually, he said stuff like that a lot, um, oh. <laughs> and his his resolution to that was often, God works in mysterious ways. Um, this strikes me as a little bit of like the physics equivalent of rounding off a square peg to get a circular one. <laughs> like, is is this typical? Like, I'm just kind of curious to put this in sort of like a context. Like, if you're presented with something extremely weird in physics, they're like. Yeah, it's got to be this way, right? Like, and do people just come up with some sort of, you know, idea that fits it, even if there's like really no proof? Or like, how often was ether kind of countered? So that's a that's a really good question, and touches on really profound issues about the nature of science, and particularly the nature of, of sciences like physics, um, because there's kind of two schools of of thought on this um, that I should that I should say battle over the ether essentially over the course of the 19th century. So one school of thought. Um, uh, is, I don't know, you might call it like a, the hyper empiricists. They say, um, you shouldn't invoke any things that you can't see directly and do tests on. Um, so these are the people who I imagine like go around the world, poking things with sticks to see if it's real. Like, okay, I can poke <laughs> it with a stick. It's real. I can do science on that. That's um, an awesome name, by the way. So I thought super ifer was cool, but a hyper empiricist <laughs> <hyper empiricist. laughs> is pretty fabulous. Um, but these people are also irritating to uh, invite to parties um, because they're constantly saying things like, well, how are you sure that's real? All right. How do you know that when you put uh, shoes on, you still have feet? Um, how do you know Mongolia exists if you've never been there? This um, is when you know, by the way, the party's getting pretty late in the evening. <laughs> these questions do come up. When, when the hyper empiricists show up. Yeah. yeah. Um, or certain substances have been consumed because this is really right. just that's like, right. this is, there's a certain stoner quality to this. Like, exactly. like how do you know when you yeah. put on shoes that exactly. you still have feet? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I should say the, these people typically call themselves um, Baconians, actually, after um, Francis Bacon, the oh, sort of Bacon. 17th century father of empiricism. <laughs> Baconian. I'm a Baconian just based yeah. on the amount of bacon. <laughs> Uh, fantastic. Um, Baconians and hyper empiricists are really Baconians. Okay, this is all good. so the and and the the reasoning behind this kind of Baconianism is really solid, right? They say we want to make sure we don't make something up. Right? We want to make mm-hmm. sure we're not mm-hmm. fooling ourselves, um, because you know, way back to the 17th century when Bacon is writing about this stuff, he's he's keenly aware of what nowadays we would call human psychology and sociology. We tend to find evidence that fits the things we're looking for. We tend to come up with explanations that make the people around us happy. Um, And one of the ways to avoid that is to make sure that 
you're really sure about what it is you're you're invoking in your scientific explanations. So these folks um, rejected the idea that you should talk about anything that you can't see um, and measure directly. And the ether, you can't. You can infer things about it from things you can measure, the behavior of light, um, but you can't see the ether directly. So, uh, so many of the Baconians say that's not an acceptable part of, of physics. And then the other group, um, they don't have as cool a name, but they're the, the hypothetico-deductive people. Um, hypothetico-deductive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Inductive. No, deductive. For deductive. God's sake, it's not inductive, no. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, just, they'll, they'll, have a, they'll have a stroke. Hypothetical um, deductive. Do they put a yeah. dash between that? Um, sometimes. This is also a point of some dispute is, is the proper use of dashes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, so uh, hypothetico, as the name suggests, uh, says it's okay to invoke hypotheses. Um, and in this, in this context, the hypothesis meaning an idea about something you can't see directly. And then deductive means um, you take that idea and you deduce consequences from it and then check to see if those consequences uh, are actually in the world. And then if you see those things, then the argument goes, uh, that's a good reason to believe your original hypothesis was correct. So by doing that, you can, um, you can talk about things you can't see because you're reasoning from the, the consequences you've deduced from that. Um, so for instance, um, I come out of my apartment one morning and the sidewalk is wet. And I want to figure out why the sidewalk is wet. I can't just check because I wasn't there last night for whatever happened, but I can put forward hypotheses that might explain why the sidewalk is wet. So I might, one hypothesis might be um, that it rained last night, in which case I deduce other consequences. So I'd say, well, if it rained last night, it probably rained um, all over the city. So I'll walk to the next block and see if the sidewalk um, uh, is wet there. And yes. if the sidewalk is wet there, um, then maybe that's a good reason to think that it rained. The yep. problem with this kind of reasoning is the one that the Baconians will bring up when they're stoned, which is like, but dude, <laughs> <laughs> it could be anything, right? Maybe the bodega guys are just hosing down the sidewalk and there's yeah. a bodega on your block and the next block. So they both got hosed down. So then, I have to say, all right, yeah. so then I have to do another layer of deduced consequences. All right, so if, that, if that's the hypothesis, I need, then there should be a bodega on both blocks. So I'll yeah. go and check. Um, and it, but you can do this forever, right? You can always come up with an alternative explanation that matches the evidence. So do. there's this, so the, there's a sense in which the Baconians are right, um, that when you invoke invisible things like the ether, you get into this problematic territory really fast. Um, but at the same time, it's hard to do much science if you're not willing to invoke anything that you can't see directly. So, right. You can't do virology, yeah. for instance, <laughs> right? That would suck. Yeah. yeah I was going to say all of biology is down the tube because I, yeah. I, I, you can't see much directly at all. It's all abstract. And I did once have a professor be like, you can't disprove that little goblins are changing your mm-hmm. results at the second you look at them to make them be whatever you th- yeah. they are. Like that's precisely right. A, um, yeah. And I, and this was I should, this is one of the big arguments around Darwin's ideas in the 19th century too, um, is that uh, Darwinian evolution is not something you can see um, because you can't stick around for the million years it takes to watch an organism evolve. So you have to um, make a hypothesis. Natural selection occurs, and then deduce consequences from that. Uh, fossils should have um, decreasing organization as you go further back in time. 
uh, and then check and see if those things uh, are correct. Uh, but if you're a real Baconian, you say that's not science. Um, so it's sort of the, and this is one of Darwin's sort of great contributions to the nature of science is persuading people that this kind of hypothetical deductive reasoning is solid and is a good way to do science. Ah. Um, so Darwin but, wore a yeah. T-shirt and said, "I'm a hypo, I'm a hypothetical, I'm a hypothetical de deductivist." Yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this, so this is the the question with the, the ether in the 19th century: is you can't see it. So, is it actually a good foundation for doing science? And the Baconians say no. The hypothetical deductivists say yes. And their argument for for that is they say if you think the ether exists, if you accept the hypothesis that there is this invisible substance that fills all of space and sometimes goes through matter and sometimes doesn't, um, then you can deduce more consequences from that. Um, and then you so, can check and see if those consequences are true as well. I just realized this would be the latest I've ever, I, compl I was so sucked in. <laughs> I realized, I, and I only realized right now, we've not declared the if. We've just Stop. gone, we just <laughs> went, we just like a speed of light, we were just sucked right in into the thing. And so the what the if we have to ask is, what the if? The ether is real. Is that right? So, so if we yeah. leap, if we leap towards this, and we jump to the fact we 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 uh, uh, spoiler alert. So, is this correct? Spoiler alert: the ether doesn't exist. We uh, have right. discovered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what if it did? What form of the ether would you like to exist? So this is this is a non-trivial question. Choose your ether, as yeah. the mathematicians say, <laughs> um, uh, because there's a lot of different possible versions of the ether. Because as we've just been talking about, when right. you make a hypothesis of something you can't see, there's lots of possible versions of it. Right. Um, so I suggest we go with um, what's sometimes called the Maxwellian ether, and this will turn into the Lodge ether as well, named after James Clark Maxwell and Oliver Lodge. Um, Does it do so that if Max you feed it after midnight? <laughs> well, kind of actually. Um, the, Don't uh, feed the ether. <laughs> Um, so Maxwell is um, uh, one of the greats of physics, usually listed as number three of the great physicists of all time after yeah. so Newton and Einstein fight it out for one and two. And then Maxwell is generally accepted to be the, uh, the third. Yeah. Um, uh, he's the Scottish physicist, lives in the, this, the middle of the 19th century. Um, uh, total weirdo, um, giant beard. Um, he, <laughs> amongst other things, um, he really liked animals, so they often got involved in his experiments in various ways, too. So, for instance, um, Maxwell invents the um, ophthalmoscope. That's the thing that the eye doctor looks at the, the back of your eye with, looks at your yeah. retina. Um, so he invents that, and he oh. tests it on his dog because his dog is there. Um, yeah. uh, the problem being <laughs> that, uh, some of you may know, um, the structure of retinas are different on dogs um, and on humans because dogs are colorblind, right? They only have ah. two sets of, of rods instead of three. Ah. So Maxwell's first conclusion about the nature of the eye, of the color vision, was actually totally wrong because he was testing it on his dog. Um, <laughs> uh, and then when he was a student, he um, he wanted, he had a cat and he, he noticed that cats always land on their feet. And because he's oh, a no. good experimental physicist, 
decides to wonder what's the minimum height at which oh, no. <laughs> um, you can drop a cat and it still lands on its feet. And, and I should say, he does this on his bed, so the cat is fine. Oh. Um, and he discovers that it's actually about six inches, which is really extraordinary. Yeah. Um, he would he have actually, the best yeah. YouTube channel. That's, oh, he would have had an amazing <laughs> YouTube channel. Um, that would have been really something to see, actually. The only problem is that he was um, his Scottish accent was totally impenetrable, so nobody <laughs> would be able to understand what he was saying. I don't know. I'm just imagining, like, Scottish Twitter does numbers, so I'm just, like, thinking, <laughs> like, I think that'd do great. <laughs> That would be very funny, actually. And I just say when he so this is he's a, an undergraduate at the University of Cambridge um, in the UK, and he goes back there as a professor later, um, and discovers when he comes back as a professor that the story of his experiments with the cat had changed somewhat over time, as stories have a tendency to do. So the story was that he was actually dropping cats out his window, oh. um, so he had to put a stop to that, <laughs> to tell people what the true story was. But then he put a stop to it in his thick accent and. Yeah, that's right. So no one knew what he was saying. And the like, English um, uh, follow it. Uh, yes, I should say so. Extremely difficult to understand verbally. Um, a terrible writer as well. So very hard to <laughs> very hard to understand on the page. Generally, a, an incomprehensible person. Um, <laughs> Uh, he's known these days, I should say, um, there's a set of four equations, Maxwell's equations, um, that if you're a physics student, you'll learn in your, your second semester. And they're the ones that make, I don't know, in an important sense, modern civilization possible. Um, so every cell phone signal, every fiber optic wire, um, anything that involves light or electricity or magnetism all come down to Maxwell's equations. Um, and the interesting thing is that Maxwell derives his equations from the ether, right? Yeah. Maxwell sits down and says, all right, if the ether behaves like this, maybe it's structured in this particular way. And if it's structured in this particular way, then it would also carry, um, in addition to light, it'll also carry electricity and magnetism. Um, and, and as he crunches through the equations, he finds that electricity and magnetism should travel as a wave in the same way that light travels as a wave. So this suggests to him that light is an electromagnetic wave um, right. and that there should be kinds of light different than what we can see, in particular, long uh, wavelength ones, which nowadays we call radio. So Maxwell predicts the existence of radio waves. Um, and then a generation later, they're discovered by Heiner Kurtz. So oh. you might point to this as, as the perfect example of how hypothetical deductive science should work. Maxwell comes up with a crazy hypothesis, derives consequences from it, um, and I should say surprising consequences, right? Easy consequences don't help because lots of hypotheses intersect with that. But no one would right. have guessed that something like radio waves existed. So the fact that he predicts their existence and their properties exactly from his weird hypothesis seems like a really good reason to believe that that thing exists. Wow, that is amazing. And I, what I love about these things occasionally is take yourself back to that time. Remember, this is a time before radio, clearly. Mm -hmm. And um, he had electricity. He, had, he understood there were magnets. He had electricity. And he just, you know, they could see a relationship between electricity and magnetism by running a motor, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. But there were no radio waves. Nobody and no one had even thought of radio waves, right? This, Why this would you? It, it, that's right. It's exactly right. Until yeah. you have this strange idea of the ether, there's no reason alone, to think that something like that would exist. Yeah. Let alone 
classic rock. Radio yeah, that's station. totally beyond the pale. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or twenty-four I was hours. Say my, you know, yeah. my parents in the '90s had a hard enough time believing from our neighbors who were like Motorola engineers that phones were going to someday be able to send text messages, <laughs> go on the internet, <laughs> watch <laughs> videos, send mm-hmm. images, take photos. They were like, no way. And then, of course, you know, we hold exactly one of those in our pocket, so right. can't imagine right. without even. Well, and that's that's right. So actually, Maxwell's working at the. Um, Let's see here. At the height of telegraph enthusiasm is probably the right way to say it. Mm, mm. Um, it's people are really getting excited about what you can do with the telegraph as, as an invention. Um, and in particular, they're wondering, how, because he's, he's British, um, and the British are really worried about trying to keep their empire in order. So one of the things they're trying to figure out is, can they run a telegraph line like fr- from London to India? Um, mm which nobody had ever done anything like that before. So the submarine telegraph project turns out to be hugely important and gives rise to all sorts of technical problems that Maxwell helps solve. Um, uh, Again, with his ether theory. So there's a sense in which, you know, when he goes to the telegraph office and he can send a telegram to Delhi and get an answer back in five minutes, that too is good evidence that the ether exists. Because oh, so they did it through the air. They didn't run a cable. No, no, they did run it through the cable, but it's um, oh. uh, strange technical problems come along with that that we don't need to, to get into. Right, right, right. Um, right, right. So but, what, yeah. what, what the, the solidity problem remains, right? In other words, so how dense did mm-hmm. he think the ether was or what, what, well, what was his vision? So this is, um, this interestingly, this evolves over time. I shall pardon the, the Darwinian um, uh, pun there. <laughs> Um, when he's young, he, he comes up with a mechanical model of the ether. Um, and I mean that in the, the most literal sense that he says, maybe the particles of the ether are little, nowadays we'd call them ball bearings. He called them idle wheels, um, are actual little wheels that spin past each other. And things like electricity and magnetism have to do with how those little spheres spin and how they're compressed and how they move past each other. So, so the universe and, yeah. would be full of little wheels. Full of little wheels, right? That um, is trippy. And, and, and seems sort of at a glance absurd. Right. Um, and one of the things that he, he and his friends did, because they were Scottish engineers, is actually build models of this. Like go oh. into the workshop and take pieces of wood and metal and build a little model and you know, strap it together with leather and things um, and then crank it and then turn the crank and you say, okay, if this is the ether, then what, you know, what does this tell us about the nature of the universe? Um, this is so steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. And I just say one of Maxwell's uh, peeps on this is um, uh, Lord Kelvin of Kelvin uh, of the, the Kelvin temperature scale that we know. Um, and Kelvin is a better engineer than Maxwell. He's actually, he has actually out there building stuff in a way Maxwell is not always doing. Um, uh, so if there's something about these Scots who like to sit down and make these mechanical models of things um, to see how they work. Um, but then that raises the, the, the question of sort of what's the philosophical status of that model, right? We're sure the universe is not actually made of little ball bearings and leather straps, but we've built a model. <laughs> the leather straps to, is a bonus. <laughs> is the weird part. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's hard to know exactly what to, to make of that. Um, and Maxwell gradually becomes convinced that it can't 
be like that, right? Whatever the ether is made of, it can't have such a, a direct physical analogy um, to mm -hmm. stuff you can build in the lab. Um, so he eventually gives up on the idea of having a clear model of what the ether is made of. Um, mm -hmm. And the metaphor he goes for, uh, he ends up with, he, he dies relatively young, actually my age now that I think about it. Oh. Um, uh, he says, okay, we can't really know what's inside the ether, but rather it's like a bell tower. So we go to a bell tower and we know there's bells inside because we can hear them ring. And there's a bunch of ropes hanging down. And by pulling on the different ropes, we can make the bells ring in different ways. So by, if we spend enough time and, and you know, have clever experiments, we can pull on the different ropes in a way that we can learn something about maybe how the bells relate to each other but we can never actually get inside the bell tower. So he says the ether is like that. We can learn things about how it behaves. We can interact with it. We can make it do stuff, but we can never actually know what's inside it. Wow. So he kind of gives it's a up. a little convenient. <laughs> it's a suspiciously convenient, we might say. Right, he doesn't right? say, I can't figure it out. He says, no one will ever know because that's if right. I can't figure it out. Um, and this is, that's, a, that's an iffy kind of argument. Because, yeah. But on one hand, you might say, look, we're human beings. We're, why should you expect that we can understand the true nature of the universe? And I should say also, yeah. Maxwell was an evangelical Christian. So mm -hmm. the idea that mm -hmm. human beings are fundamentally limited in what we can know about the world made perfect sense to him. Mm -hmm. um, the, so, but if you're, I don't know, if you're a scientific maximalist, you might resist ever being told you can't know something. Um, so a lot of people, so not everyone took Maxwell's advice on this. That is, a lot of people still did try to investigate what was going on in the ether and try to understand it better. Um, but generally, people accepted that there was some essence of it that was beyond human knowledge, at least at the time, that there were mysterious properties. And that's just the way it was going to be. Yeah, and you mentioned the mysterious properties. That was what kind of kicked us off on Ether to begin with, right? Because didn't people find it very attractive because there was a sort of metaphysical ghost and whatnot stuff that you could attribute to the Ether as well? Yeah, that's right. Um, so this era is also the great era of spiritualism. Um, uh, Maxwell himself wasn't into it, but many of his contemporaries were. So this was back when your evening entertainment wasn't watching TV. It was going over to the Joneses' house next door and having a seance. Um, you know, they'd invite a medium over and the neighbors would hang out and you would talk to dead people uh, for a little while. Wow. So, if, did it, if anyone ever thought of charging for their seance, then it would have been like a subscription service. Like, for, you wouldn't yeah, have Netflix. Probably, well, and I should tell you, you would, the, the mediums yeah. did, like, that was a job. Um, you could uh -huh. make a living as a medium. Uh -huh. um, and interestingly... Um, uh, this is very much a, a side thing, but mediums were usually women. Um, and there's an interesting inversion here where so this is the high Victorian period um, where women did not have positions of authority, but they were, but because women could seem to talk to ghosts better than men could, um, it was a way for women to kind of leverage some, some authority in social oh, and domestic spaces. So anyway. That's interesting. Um, it also proves that if humans can charge a subscription for something, they We will. totally will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so people... Um, 
the, the reasoning goes, if we're surrounded by this mysterious substance, um, the ether, that can apparently carry messages from point A to point B, um, maybe it can also carry messages from the afterlife to the present. Um, uh, that is, it's this kind of fourth dimension um, where perhaps this, because one of the, the things that that mediums and spirits seem to be able to do was interact over distances, right? The medium could make right, the table right. wrap from across the room. Um, so this kind of action at a distance seemed kind of familiar to the spiritualists and to the, the physicists. And in fact, a lot of physicists and chemists um, explore exactly this question. Um, there's a, a scientific group called the Society for Psychic Research that gets founded in the 1870s, essentially to investigate exactly this problem. Um, could the ether be the medium for spiritualistic phenomena? Ah, so when they, when they there's a lot of complaints, you know, among uh, fans of the occult. We'll say, well, science doesn't look into this stuff, but mm -hmm. you're actually saying no. Actually, we, they totally did. Yeah. did. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a book about this called Physics and Psychics um, by my friend Richard Noakes and O A K E S, um, looking into the history of the the SPR. If you're interested, um, and they take this. This is a serious research project. So. They design experimental equipment for it. They bring um, mediums into the lab uh, to try and do controlled tests on what's happening. Awesome. Um, and these are these are world class scientists. People like William Crookes, for instance, um, uh, is one of the great um, nowadays we call him a physical chemist of the day. And he surely would have won the Nobel Prize if the Nobel Prize had existed at the time. But he had all the other <laughs> awards lined up. Um, and people uh, are taking this very seriously. And some of it's, it's the SBR is an interesting group. It's about half believers, that is, people who think spiritual phenomena are real and are looking for experimental validation of it. And it's about half skeptics who want to explore this stuff so as to prove that it's wrong. Um, mm -hmm. But they're both working with the ether. Um, everybody accepts that the ether is real. The question is just whether it can convey, it can carry these um, uh, spiritual messages along. Oh, with that's interesting. Is that they both yeah. they both believe the ether is real? Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And the the chief person here is um, let's see, one of Maxwell's acolytes, a guy named Oliver Lodge, um, who who should be remembered as one of the founders of radio, the inventors of radio. He misses the patent for radio to Marconi by like hours. It's one oh. of these crazy moments, like who gets to the patent office first kind of situations. Wow. Um, but a hugely important person, right? We would not have modern radio without Oliver Lodge. Mm. Um, uh, and he also is a spiritualist um, and tries to uh, tries to measure the ether directly in all sorts of different ways, both so he can figure out um, how electromagnetic waves work and so he can talk to his dead son. Um, it's, uh, it's really quite an extraordinary thing. Um, Lodge also lives an extremely long time. Um, he's born... 1870 something um, and lives to uh, World War II. Um, mm -hmm. So 
you can see his thinking evolve along with the development of technology and also with sort of the, the development of the way people think about spiritualism at the time too. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're willing to go with the with Lodge's ether, um, we're surrounded not just by this invisible, mysterious stuff that carries light and electromagnetism, um, uh, but also connects with our minds and our souls in some kind of way. Um, wow. That's uh, uh, so in the same way that we can build a transmitter and a receiver for um, listening to Howard Stern, we should be able to build a transmitter and a receiver that let us talk to Abraham Lincoln. Um, and that's, by the way, that's, I'm going to, this is a cliffhanger. <laughs> and this is something we haven't done in a long time. <laughs> Gabby, I was mentioning before that uh, uh, we haven't done this in a long time, but occasionally we come up with an, uh, with an if in a subject that is so deep and fascinating and colorful and fun that we have to break it into two parts. And I think that this is, I, I, what I want to do is, because I want to do a whole, a, in part two of this episode, uh, which we'll do next week, um, we will build instruments to investigate. Uh, we'll choose one of these types of ethers, which uh, um, doesn't we don't believe exists now, but what if it did, you know? Uh, clearly, the wheels—the wheels and leather straps—one isn't real, but there are others. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe we could test, which I think would be fascinating. Because what if the? We'll find out what would happen if the results of our experiments had turned out differently, and it turned out we live in one of these ethers that was imagined. That would be fantastic. Um, Gabby, do you have any uh, uh, a last thought as to what kind of images this has put in your mind? That, or maybe a question you have for part two that we'll investigate. I don't know. The idea of a ghost radio is uh, kind of fun. I used to ghost watch a radio. lot of, uh, God, what was it called? Uh, like ghost investigators. There's the one with like the group of dudes and like they always leave one guy alone. Ghost adventures. I used to watch a lot of that in college. Uh, we had a brilliant drinking game for it. Uh, so the idea of them with their weird Xbox Connect thick camera in a dark room having slightly more, I don't know, scientifically validated equipment is fascinating to me. Yeah. Like how do you make a, a very hyped up ghost show, uh, but you actually have equipment? Right. I'm <laughs> yeah, imagining right. what, what, what are the different, what are the different radio stations on ghost radio? It could be kind of fun. Classic, uh, classic <laughs> rock ghost radio, you know? Um, well, I'm sure rock is going to mean a couple different things. If you can go far enough back to have like Neanderthals. Yeah. There's just one that's yeah. just like mm -hmm. flint napping. Nice. Be down for that. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Uh, by the way, those of you who are Patreon supporters, exclusively for Patreon supporters, we're gonna, there's a little going to be a bonus here. Uh, kind of, it'll it'll be an interstitial place with some additional thoughts uh, from Matt and Gabby, and uh, I'll throw in my own uh, ridiculous comments. Um, a Patreon exclusive bonus uh, discussion. Only for Patreon members. So if you want to get one of those and you want to hear some of the uh, the ones we've done in the past, all the which are fascinating, uh, patreon.com slash whattheif, uh, or just go to our website, whattheif.com. You can hear all our other episodes. So thank you to all you Patreon supporters, by the way, for helping us uh, make that happen. So um, as we are left here in limbo, in the ether, flying in the unknown, um, uh riding our our magical craft through the thicket of little wheels and leather straps of James Clark Maxwell's imagination. Um, 
Gabby, will you help us uh, help us deal with this with our closing ritual? Yeah, as we are essentially in this environment that Phil has laid out very beautifully for us, we cannot help but to shout the name of the show in unison together. What? The Into the ether we go. Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion. And Patreon members, stay tuned for your special bonus. Or you find the special bonus on the Patreon page. That's where you want to go. Patreon.com slash what the ifs. Thank you all for listening. See you next week on the Ghost Radio.